Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Find Your Model Health, the official podcast for those looking to optimize their long-term health and weight goals. I hope everyone is really well this week. We got our first dump of snow in Alberta, so that was a wake-up call. Winter's on the way. So I am very excited about our guest today. I'm speaking to Dr. Glenn Livingston, and I know a lot of you have heard of him before because I've spoken about him a lot over the years. Um, But before I go on to introduce Dr. Livingston, I must remind you that the information in these podcast episodes is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. So today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Glenn Livingston, who is a veteran psychologist and author of best-selling books, Never Binge Again, and 101 Best Food Rules, which I showed you I have a couple in my stock. Um, Also, he is co-founder of Never Again Incorporated, a company that specializes in helping people stop binge eating and overeating and lose weight and really learn how to think like a permanently slimmer person on whatever diet or lifestyle of their choice. Uh, He's also spent several decades researching the nature of binging, which we're going to discuss, and overeating with his own patients, which included a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Dr. Livingston, that is very impressive repertoire, and we're very happy to have you. How are you doing? I'm very good, and Shemaine, please call me Glenn. Glenn, I will. Yes, I, I have a little bit of a cold today, so if I sound funny, it's um, that's why. It, you've got the Phoebe thing going on, Phoebe O' Friends, when <laughs> yes, she had I her do. cold. <laughs> I, I must have seen every episode seven times, so yes, I you know, know. What you yeah. I'm moving on to like The Simpsons now or something. <laughs> so it's very nice to meet you. You have a, an impressive kind of CV going on, as we call it in Ireland, which is um, your resume. Mm-hmm. You've worked with a lot of people in regards to overeating and binge eating, before I even get to the questions, why? Like, what got you? Why did you get interested in this area of all areas of health and nutrition? Well, I I was originally a binge eater myself, and I I didn't work with overeaters. I was um, I'm a child and family psychologist by training, and I had a child and family practice for a lot of years in the nineties. Um, but you know, between patients, I was running over to the Woodbury Country Deli and you know, trying to clean them out of their inventory of pizza and pasta and Pop-Tarts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and man, I, you know, I'm from a family of 17 psychologists. And so I tried everything. I, I, um, I, I really thought that the problem must be a hole in my heart. And like, if I could solve the hole in my heart and fill that, then I would stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And that that's, you know, the traditional love yourself thin approach. And, I learned a lot about myself taking that approach. I went to see the best doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists and nutritionists. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous and everything you could imagine for literally 20 years. Um, And I would get a little thinner and a bunch fatter and a little thinner and a bunch fatter. And I kind of stair stepped my way up uh, during a crisis in my life around 2003. probably was as much as 300 pounds. I, I stopped weighing myself when I was around 257, but I wasn't doing much besides having chocolate and pizza those days. I was, um, I was really buried in the food and um, I felt like I couldn't stop. I felt like I was overtaken by it. I would be sitting with a suicidal patient and I, I never lost anybody, thank God. Um, it's always very important to me to be a great psychologist, but um, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient thinking about when can I get the next chocolate bar, you know? And that bothered me more than the physical problems, honestly. Um, And so there were a couple of things along the way that eventually flipped the paradigm for me from a love yourself thin approach to more of a be the alpha dog of your own mind approach or the alpha wolf of your own mind. And, you know, when an alpha wolf sees a challenging wolf in the pack challenging for leadership it doesn't say oh my goodness someone needs a hug 
it growls and it snarls and it says, get, get back in line or I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. and, and so I said, well, this is really just, um, it's just another, it's just another bodily impulse that we have to control. Like, you know, you have to control your uh, bladder, right? You, if I had to pee right now really badly, I wouldn't run off and pee because I'm doing an <laughs> important interview with you. I'd say, yeah. hang out while I talk to Shemaine. You know, in yeah, about an I hour, we'll, hold we'll, on. Yeah, we'll take care of you, you know, yeah. you you can't run up to attractive people in the street and just kiss them on the lips. Like here, these are bodily impulses that we're already used to controlling. Why couldn't I do one more? Um, but what really reinforced my thinking like that and empowered me to make that flip was that I didn't have kids. I was married for 28 years to a woman that travels for business. So I didn't have kids and I didn't commute. And I had a lot of time in my hands, so I started a second career as a consultant to industry. And um, I'm ashamed to admit I was on the wrong side of the war. I was helping big Fortune 500 companies sell, you know, sugar and excitotoxins and really bad stuff, some of it to kids. And I feel contrite at this point in my life. I'm trying to make up for it. But I was on the wrong side of the war. As a result of that, I was privy to a lot of what was going on inside. And I saw how they were engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt that were, they were engineered to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is addiction. And the advertising agencies were really good at packaging this stuff so that our reptilian brain thought that we needed it, that we needed it to survive. Like, like, Stop me if you've heard these stories or if your audience ha has, but um, I remember a VP of marketing and a major food bar manufacturer was leaving his company and he kind of hung his head in shame as he talked to me and he said, you know, Glenn, I think the most profitable thing we ever did was to take the vitamins out of the bar because they were too expensive and they made it taste worse. And we put the money into the packaging instead. So we made these multicolored, diverse, you know, diverse, shiny packages which in nature, a multitude of colors would signal a diversity of micronutrients. Mm -hmm. You're told to eat the rainbow mm -hmm. because when you have green lettuce and blueberries and red tomatoes and yellow carrots, and you're, you're nutrifying yourself across the spectrum. Right? You're supposed to eat the rainbow. Mm -hmm. But here they were faking us out. And I don't mean to single out the food run manufacturer because it goes on across the industry. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you tons more things that they do to to make it hard for you to eat healthy. Um, and so these were two really strong external forces that had nothing to do with the fact that, you know, my mama didn't love me enough or she dropped me on her head and she dropped me in my head and her mother <laughs> dropped her on her head, you know. Yeah. Um, like I had all these complicated theories about what was wrong with me. But in the end, it was, um, you know, it was just really a, a bad habit that I had to control. The last thing that really got me to switch the paradigm um, after after discovering that the reptilian brain doesn't know love, this is uh, the feast and famine response inside of us. It's part of the reptilian brain. And when the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, it's purely about survival. Do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? So this is the reptilian brain. It's an eat, mate, or kill thing. On top of that is mammalian brain that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that you love? on your tribe. And then the neocortex says, before you eat meat or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your higher order goals, weight loss, your health, your fitness, um, the kind of person you're trying to be in the world. And the last straw for me was I did this long study when clicks were cheap on the internet and I got 40,000 people to take a survey. I intercepted them when they were searching for some type of stress management solution. And I asked them, what are they stressed about? And once they told me what they were stressed about, I asked them, what foods did they turn to that they couldn't stop eating? And I gave them a list of all the things that people had previously told me they couldn't stop eating sometimes. And I found that the people who were struggling with chocolate, who couldn't stop eating chocolate, they tended to be more lonely, brokenhearted, or a little depressed. Um, and that resonated with me because I was struggling with chocolate always as my first go-to for a binge. Then it would wash it down with pizza and lattes and whatever you can imagine. Mm. Um, and, and the people who were struggling with um, crunchy chips and pretzels and things like that and salty stuff, they, 
they tended to be stressed at work and the people who were struggling with soft chewing things tended to be stressed at home. But that's really interesting. So I call my mom, who's also a psychotherapist and also struggles with chocolate. And I said, mom, I found this really interesting thing. And I don't, this was, this was like 16 years ago when I was 42, something like that, 41, 42. And they said, mom, I want you to know, I totally forgive you. I don't care what happened. Um, I just want to figure out why this is. I found this thing that that people who struggle with chocolate, they tend to be a little lonely or brokenhearted. And she knew I wasn't really happy in the marriage at the time. And I said, is that what it is? And how did this pattern get set up? And so she gets this horrible look on her face. And after I reassured her seven times that I forgave her, she said, well, you know, in 1965, when you were one year old, your father, my husband, was a captain in the army. And they were threatening to send him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because not only did I have you, but we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I thought I'm going to be an army widow with two little kids. And at the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And I didn't know that he was guilty. I didn't know he was doing these things, and he was. And so my whole world had come apart. And so half the time, your father was off working. I was sitting, staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed. And you would come running over to me for love or for cuddles or to play or even for some healthy food. And I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you. I um, kept a, a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, go get you Bosco. And you would go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open it up and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And, you know, if the way that it worked was that you had to find the emotional conflict and solve it, then at that moment, it would have been like in the movies. And mom and I would have a big cry and a big hug and we'd forgive each other and I'd forgive myself. And then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. And we did kind of have a metaphorical cry or, or a hug, but, and I felt better. Like I felt softer about myself. I didn't hate myself as much, but by the same token, my chocolate eating started to get worse. There was this voice of justification in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to go on, you know, having as much chocolate as you can. Let's get it right now. Yippee, let's go get it. So my paradigm at that point flipped. If you think of emotions as a fire, like a roaring fire in a fireplace, a roaring fire as a fireplace in the living room is an asset, not a liability, right? As long as the fireplace is contained well, people gather around it, they laugh, they cry, they make memories, they they hug, they they share. It's an asset, not a liability. It's only if there are holes in the fireplace that the fire can burn the house down. And he said, well, what if the goal isn't so much to solve my emotional problems? What if I need to sever the link between emotions and overeating by looking at these justifications. Maybe it's the justifications that allow the fire to get out of the fireplace. And so I did something kind of crazy and this all comes kind of full circle to what you asked me. And I said, um, what if I draw a really bright line or a line in the sand so I know when that reptilian brain is active? Because I, I can't have this kind of squishy, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe this is healthy, maybe it's not. What if we had a hard and fast rule that said, I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm in a Starbucks on a Wednesday and I hear a little voice in my head that says, you know, Glenn, you see that chocolate bar at the counter? You worked out, you worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. Just, just a few bites is not going to kill you. You can start your silly diet again tomorrow just as easily. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. I'm a little embarrassed that I said this as a sophisticated psychologist, but remember, I wasn't going to teach it. This was very internal. Yeah. I said, that's not me. That's my inner pig. My inner pig is squealing for pig slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a weekday. Um, I don't eat chocolate on weekdays, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I certainly don't eat pig slop. And as ridiculous and primitive as that sounded, it was really the first thing that would wake me up to the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right choice. And I can't say that I always did make the right choice, but it eliminated all the sense of confusion and it kind of restored my sense of free will. And then over time, I would play with the different types of rules that I would make. 
And I would say, well, now all I have to do, now that I know that it's me making these choices and I don't have some mysterious emotional problem or I don't have to have a spiritual awakening because I was never someone who could meditate and do all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what if I just play with the rules and create something that I can and will do? What if I make really easy rules that I'm willing to do? Like I'll, you know, I'll always put my fork down between bites or um, I'll never go back for seconds. And slowly but surely, I found some things that I could and would do that would stick. And I didn't lose a lot of weight right away, but I totally regained the sense of control. I lost my sense of powerlessness and hopelessness and despair, which was really overwhelming. The food obsession also started to go away because there were no more critical decisions to make. Um, then I started to lose weight. Then over the course of a couple of years, I kept a journal about the types of things the pig would say, and I'd figure out why they were wrong. So for example, when the pig says it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, the truth is that doesn't, that's not how the brain works. If you have a craving for chocolate today and a thought that justifies the craving, and then you eat chocolate, you strengthen the association between the thought, the craving, and the food. So the craving is going to be more likely to occur tomorrow at a deeper level, and I'm more likely to use the same excuse tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you've got to stop digging. The only time you can eat healthy is the present. So for eight years, I just kept a journal myself. And, you know, I struggled with the different things the pig would say. I looked at the different forms of its lies. It, it would tell like a, a half a truth with a bigger lie. That's basically how it worked. Mm -hmm. And um, I got better. I got better. I got down to a reasonable weight. Um, my triglycerides went down, my rosacea and, you know, psoriasis and all that went away for the most part. And um, I got better. And as I was getting divorced in 2015, um, my my CEO at one of the companies I was involved with, I, I was a minor partner at a publishing company, and Yoav called me up and he said, Glenn, we really need to publish our own book. You're getting divorced now. Could you write a book? Do you need something to do? Could you write? And yeah, said, you've well, loads of time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you know you don't want to build other businesses while you're getting divorced. Yeah. Um, See, so yeah, I suppose I could write a book. And so I, um, I took the journal, I turned it into a book and I sent it to him and he calls me back a few weeks later and he says, Glenn, I don't eat donuts, donuts are pig slop, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeds to lose almost 100 pounds over the next 18 months. Along the way, we published it. We both have a lot of marketing experience, so we had that on our side, but it was apparently a good book. It really resonated with people. And you know, now that we've got, we've got more reviews than The Da Vinci Code and people don't quite recognize me by name but if i'm in a bookstore once in a while people kind of point at me and say a pig guy you're the pig guy you're him so, yeah <laughs> yeah so that, that's that's my story well that's your halloween costume sorted <laughs> there you go um, you have pretty much covered most of the questions i had there in that monologue there but so one, I will, I noticed that when you started talking, and I've spoke about this a lot with my clients, and it does really resonate with me too, that you, you kind of connected your binge eating to unhappiness in the beginning, that hole in your heart, that un, really just not fulfilled, not uh -huh. getting everything you need. But then you started to obviously progressing through your journey you started to see that connection between the marketing kind of twists and turns that they do to make us consume certain foods and then you started to recognize um, other tendencies that were in yourself that caused you to overeat but when you did I will be honest when you spoke about your story of one-year-old you inside I cried uh, that's uh, so sad because yeah. it really is because you visualize how you're expressing it and with when you come to a point like that where you and your mother like talk openly about what happened yes you do kind of get that okay understanding this is partially why I have these issues but it's a double-edged sword, like you said, because as you were saying it, I'm like, uh oh, that's a double-edged sword, because then you have this excuse. You allow yourself to have the chocolate because 
well, like this is why, this is what happened. It really is another excuse. As much as I hate to put the term excuse on binging, sometimes it is an excuse for whatever we're dealing with. Um, So you did answer a lot of questions there. Now, you won't know this. A lot of my followers will know this. I used to be 280 pounds as well. Really? I lost 165 and I've maintained it since like 2008. But even as a health professional now, I still have those binging tendencies and that's a long time. And people think just because you're in the health industry or you do whatever you do, that you're somehow exempt from all of this. No, I probably, probably 20% of our clients are health professionals of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can manage it a bit better than the average person, but I still have my days. As I say to my clients, there are fuck it days. You just get to a stage where you say fuck it and you have whatever, and then I'll start again tomorrow and I will start again tomorrow but a lot of people won't they'll spiral out of control as I'm sure you know but you have spoke a lot there about kind of what drives them but why do you think specifically women are more susceptible to binging and overeating before we go into like anything else like that that's a very in my opinion primal question why women why are we more susceptible I'd like to address that. And um, I'd also like to talk a little bit about emotional eating if I could, because there's there's more to unpack there. Um, Women have a lot more pressure on them to look good. uh, Unfortunately, um, but it is what it is. uh, A a lot of our society still evaluates a woman on what her figure is and how she looks. And men have a lot more leeway. You know, if, if they're powerful in some way in society, then they can get away with having a bit of a belly. I don't think it should be like that. Um, you know, my girlfriend tells me it's not really like that anymore. I, I kind of still think it is. Um, and and so women feel like they're giving up their power when they start to lose their figure. And so there's more of a panic associated with it. Um, I think that, I think that nurturing takes more energy honestly (laughs) that that that, um, and i think that women are hormonally predisposed to be i mean i I think i'm a very loving nurturing person and if i if i had kids i would take equal responsibility but even so i think there are some things i would never know there's some ways i would never feel and um and you know a lot of women are giving out all this nurturing without taking it back in in any way Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and they're more sensitive to that also. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which, which is not to say men are not sensitive to a lack of nurturance, but more so women are. So that's my best guess. It's really funny because when I published the book, I figured I had, I put a big four men star on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I said for men only and 95% of the people who bought it and then came to the coaching programs were women. And I said, there's something interesting going on here. Um, so I, I think that's a good part of why. I think it's a good part of why. I think that, um, I think we have more female clients also because women are more open to looking inwards at the thoughts and feelings that are driving overeating and men are taught, you know, just kind of tough it out. Um, I think we're making progress in our culture. I don't think it's as bad as it was 30, 40 years ago, but I think mm-hmm. that's that's still the case. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer that question? Can I talk about emotional eating or do you want to? Yeah, before you do, I I have the majority of my clients are female. And it's not that I specifically target female. It is just women are more in tune. They do try to take care of themselves. They know they have to. Men are more primal and let's go kind of thing. But I do see the demand in society to look a certain way. So we had the Marilyn Monroe time and then we had the skinny supermodels era. And then we just left from what I'm seeing, we just left the curvier, embrace your curves, heavier kind of era. But now I've noticed Hollywood and I've seen headlines. Um, Hollywood is now going back towards that more supermodel kind of stick thin image and they're promoting I don't want to give out names, but specific injections that can help you be very skinny. So now that's a bit concerning when you look at the younger girls and what they're now going to be exposed to 
by how certain celebrities appear. Yeah. We do have the nurturing aspect. We also have the hormones, which are always fun. And then we also have the demand nowadays. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but women, we fought so hard for women's rights and we want to get paid the same as men and we want to have our careers, but we also want to have kids. We also want to have the home. So we're doing like everything and anything. And from what yeah. I see with my clients, at the end of the day, they don't have time to take care of themselves. Right. And like, they. I mean, no the truth is they don't have time not to when people. Well, but, yeah, but, but, I know. but yeah, but you have less time than. Yeah. Than and, yeah. And it goes both ways. It's choices. Do you want to watch the Netflix movie at the end of the day? Or should you go for a walk or go to bed early? Like there is that yeah. aspect of things, yeah. but definitely. I feel a greater demand on our willpower battery every day than compared to men's for sure. Agreed. No, no arguments there. No <laughs> arguments at all. <laughs> but let's go to the emotional because that that is almost everything. Well, I wanted to talk more about that because the relationship between emotions and overeating is more complex than most people think. There's an association, right? Um, feel lonely chocolate kind of serves as an escape when you overstimulate the nervous system it's hard for the nervous system to conduct the emotions um, when you overstimulate the digestive system it's hard for the nervous system to get the energy to conduct the emotions so we associate escaping um, uncomfortable emotions with overeating so there is that you know golden girls moment when they say i'll go get the cheesecake and there's something to that there's something to that it, it works to a certain extent yeah quote-unquote numbing out except you're not really numbing out because if you were to ask a dentist when he's out of novocaine does he ever inject his patients with a bagel um you know that that just doesn't happen because there's something different that we're seeking when we're going to eat the bagels or chocolate or by the way i don't i don't advocate against eating those things if you want them i just advocate identifying the troubled areas and regulating that if you if you need to and sometimes you have to give it up altogether I, I had to give up chocolate altogether but my clients don't for the most part um so that's the first part is this traditional uh emotional upset boom there's the overeating episode but there are other things that that are going on we're not only escaping overeating we're actually kind of getting high with food Cho we didn't have chocolate and pop tarts and pizza and potato chips on the savannah as we were evolving. These are concentrated forms of pleasure um, and calories that were not available during our evolution. So we're not evolutionarily prepared to handle them. So an another word for that might be like a drug where we're getting high with food in a way that we're not naturally intended to, to get high. Um, so there's that. And if you stop telling yourself that you're escaping or turning to comfort food and say, it looks like I'm trying to get high with food instead, that becomes ego dystonic. Most people don't want to think of themselves like a drug mm -hmm. addict. Yeah. So whereas if you say, I need to comfort myself, you're going to say, oh, oh boy, baby, I need to you know, take care of myself. And your inner pig is going to love that. Um, Just to stop you there, I totally recognize in myself when I do go for a choice, chocolate actually is my vice. I know in my head, I specifically want that serotonin hit. I know that's what I'm after and I'll weigh up the pros and cons. And a lot of the time the chocolate will win, uh, but I consciously know it. I used to be at the stage of, oh, I just want to take care of myself basically. But mm -hmm. now I know, I know better. Like I want that hit. Yeah. And so you probably regulate it more successfully knowing that rather than thinking you're just taking care of yourself in a healthy way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then between the emotions and the overeating, there's that fireplace. There's there, and supposedly, ideally, you sever the link, so it doesn't matter how much of a roaring fire you have, the fireplace keeps it contained, and you can enjoy it rather than being threatened by it. However, sometimes there are holes in the fireplace. This, this voice of justification makes it okay. Like I, I made a rule that I'm not going to have chocolate on a weekday. So my brain has to say, well, why is it okay? You, we don't, there's something called cognitive dissonance. When mm -hmm. we define a way we would like to be, 
it's uh, we're actually kind of defining our identity like that and we find ourselves behaving otherwise the brain has to justify it in some way and you can look at those justifications and start to disempower them so there's that voice of justification in between oh just one bite won't hurt it's only going to be a little bite and it's never just a little bite yeah right? it's not right? it's like right. pringles <laughs> right right or um screw it i don't care well yeah. Is it you that don't care, that doesn't care, or is it the pig that doesn't care? You know, mm. you, you, you actually made that rule when you were of sound mind and body and you were capable of accessing your rational brain to intellectually decide how you wanted to be around that particular substance. Um, so I would argue that it's not you who doesn't care, it's your pig that doesn't care. So I tell people to memorize this one line that says, I don't care that you don't care, pig, because I care very much, now go back in your cage. Um, it sounds a little silly, but I can make a big difference. Yeah, it's definitely a mouthful for sure. Well, I don't care that you don't care, pig. Just remember that part. Yeah. Okay. I don't I don't care that you don't care. Um, but then there's another aspect to this. So there's the there's the voice of justification. There's the fact that we're getting high with food, not just comforting ourselves. Um, but then did you know that the the chocolate also reinforces the feeling that you're having, the bad feeling that you don't want to have in the first place. It brings it down. It takes you away from it in the short run, but your brain is set up to replicate the feelings that lead to calories and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So um, let's take anxiety, for example. Yeah. A lot of people tell me they can't get to sleep without overeating. And usually they'll do some type of carbs, like, you know, pasta, pizza, something like that. And they are trying to get rid of the anxiety. Well, having the pizza will temporarily reduce the anxiety. But if you feel anxious and then you have pizza, your body's going to learn that the way to get pizza is to feel anxious. Mm -hmm. And so those physiological expressions of anxiety, like a heightened heart rate or perspiration or respiration elevation or galvanic skin response or blood pressure going up, you're going to teach your body to produce that more often. So for example, when we look at a group of baboons who's given a sugar reward whenever they um, demonstrate high blood pressure, that group of baboons learns to have higher blood pressure more consistently over time. Not at the very moment that right after the sugar, but if you measure the blood pressure throughout the day, it's higher than the baboons that never got that sugar reward. So you might be creating the problem in the first place by reinforcing those feelings with sugar. So it, that, it's, I'm sorry, is that more of an, an innate response rather than a conscious response? Like, whereas with a dog, a dog will learn to give the paw and get a treat. Like they'll yeah. know, but you're saying like blood pressure is not exactly something we can it's involuntary. involuntary. Yeah. Like yeah. that's very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. In involuntary autonomic responses can be conditioned by operant conditioning. Okay. That, operant that is interesting. Yeah. You, you can look that up online. I'm sorry. My computer is bothering me for a second. You can look that up as operant conditioning, but it just basically says, look, this goes the other way also. So it's yeah. not just emotions here, but also operant conditioning will reinforce the emotion if you have it. So all of, things, all of those things combined mean that you should probably stop telling yourself that you're just having comfort food. Um, you're getting high with food. You're teaching your body to produce feelings that you don't like. You're not actually escaping from the feelings from anything but a very short period. The feelings that you are frightened of might not be as It's a pretty teacup. I like the... I have a whole set of them. Oh, do you? <laughs> um, the the um, feelings that you're frightened of actually might be being made worse by the overeating itself. So that helps a lot of people to break the pattern once they recognize that because they're not telling themselves those things. Yeah. This, this, your approach, my approach, everyone's approach is obviously very individual. We all respond differently. Some people need to be spoken to softer. Some people need to be mollycoddled, as we say in Ireland. Some people need to be harder. I have always taken the approach with my clients, and I think it is part of the Irish in me that I'm very upfront. And I've always said, you know what? Wrapping people in cotton wool has not got us anywhere. It's time to be realistic and more harsh and upfront with people and kind of I see that in your approach It's like you might not like to hear these words, but it's for your own good and some people will respond to that very well, but some people 
they will get offended by certain words. Have you noticed that a lot? Because I can see through <laughs> by bringing up the whole pig, calling yourself a pig or a part of your your personality a pig and certain words, people can get offended. But do you what do you say to that? Like, do you have another I, name? I, I wish I didn't call it a pig. I wish I called it a food monster. This would work just as well if you thought of it as a food monster or a food demon. Yeah. And I, I tell people that if the word pig, the word pig works for a lot of people, yeah. but if it doesn't work for you, if it offends you, then use food monster or food demon or something like that. It's, yeah. um, yeah, it was not necessary that I, you know, I, I wrote the book while I was getting divorced. I was kind of angry. Um, and I, I, I guess I was only slightly aware that this could be public, but at the time I said, who cares? My, yeah. my, my philosophy as a psychologist is an iron fist in a velvet glove, yeah. an iron fist in a velvet glove. Like I'm, I'm not going to give you grandma psychology and just let you sit on my lap and cry. Um, because I don't, I think that'll make you feel better temporarily, but it won't really give you the results that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm just not going to, you know, smack you around and tell you what's wrong with you without compassion or some type of psychological anesthesia. And if, if you listen to my recorded coaching calls and things, you'll see that I'm a, I'm a pretty compassionate person, despite this cockamamie, cockamamie yeah. theory yeah. that we have. But yeah, I, iron fist and a velvet glove. Yeah. I, I say that as well. Like I am compassionate. I do understand. But sometimes you do have to say, just stop your shit. Like, just stop. You have to be yeah. realistic about yeah. this because Molly coddling over the last decade has not got us anywhere. We're sicker than ever. We're fatter than ever. Like, it's really time that people take things more seriously. I want to say, get a kick of ass. And that's really where those words, you can see where people would get offended by your approach. But I understand, like, writing that and, and not just writing that when you're getting divorced some people do just have that personality of just stop your shit like let's just do yeah I, I i don't though i'm 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 mostly a sweetheart i it's not natural <laughs> for me that's part of why it took me so long to recover yeah. um but yeah yeah i i have um i've got a lot of compassion for people and a lot of tolerance for the resistance but um by the same token you know i could be doing a lot of other things making a lot more money if i wanted to yeah. And I'm doing this mostly as a labor of love. I have to make a living, but mostly yeah. as a labor of love. Yeah. And so I don't, I tend not to put up with people making excuses for too long. And, you know, yeah. it's a, a kill them or cure them kind of philosophy. Like, um, yeah. you're going to, you're going to hear what you need to hear. Yeah. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to set it out for you in a way that's very palatable and very doable. Um, I'm going to be compassionate with you about your resistance. But at the end of the day, you're going to hear what you need to hear <coughs> from, Oh, excuse me for me and my team assuming that i don't die before that <laughs> yeah it's it's like i have the empathy i understand where you're coming from but you paid me to help you so yeah this yeah. is what needs to be done yeah back to what you were saying because people will resonate to this about that self-justification i was speaking to this about a client yesterday she's like i'm great in the morning and then somehow this voice comes in by dinner there's a devil on her shoulders saying, well, you had a good breakfast and lunch. You're entitled to some treats at dinner, kind of like, yeah. well, you earned it. Because, Or you'll hear people say, well, I was good Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I've earned my tree. Like that self-justification that really conquers, it wins most of the time. Well, if you want to have a treat on Thursdays, then plan out a very specific treat on Thursdays. Um, what we've discovered is that overeating, binge eating, eating beyond your own best judgment, it's really the result of succumbing to whim and impulse and emotions around difficult food decisions. And so if you eat by design instead, you know, like my business partner will have a piece of chocolate cake on Friday mornings with his wife at a particular restaurant every single Friday morning, and he, you know, lost almost 100 pounds doing that. Um your brain learns those contextual cues and eventually stops craving at other times. The other thing you're describing is that willpower, it's not like a discrete genetic gift. It's more like gas in the tank. And we wake up with a certain amount of it. And over the course of the day, we wear it down with, with decisions. Not just food decisions, by the way. We wear down our willpower by... Um, 
making all kinds of decisions, email decisions, yeah. decisions about who's going to take the kids to soccer practice. Um, we do studies where people are given the opportunity to eat marshmallows and they have more trouble resisting marshmallows after you have them do math problems. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that there must be something going on in the brain where you're maybe you're burning some glucose, maybe you're, you need something to restore that, but there are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of the day. As a consequence, first, you could try to make your most important food decisions in the morning. Mm -hmm. So have your dinner waiting for you in Tupperware. If you need to have it in the car, um, in a cooler, so you can have it on the car on the way home and then do that. But know specifically what you're going to have, you're going to feel proud of. Don't force yourself into a situation where you're going to be fatigued and overloaded and you're passing all of the um, fast food restaurants, which are designed to seduce your pig. I mean, they know what they're doing. Believe mm -hmm. me, they know what they're doing. There, yeah. there are billions of dollars of studies that go into that. Um, but the other thing is you can reduce the need to rely on willpower by making more food decisions up front. So when I say I'll never eat chocolate again on a weekday, I've made, you know, 70, 80% of my food decisions for the week of my chocolate decisions for the week. I'm not wearing down my willpower every time I'm, I'm in at a Starbucks in front of a, um, in front of a chocolate bar. So you can use hard and fast rules, which work infinitely better than um, guidelines like, well, eat well, just have chocolate 10% of the time and skip it 90% of the time, which is great in theory, mm -hmm. but how do you know which is the 10% or which are the 90%? You got to make a decision every time. Yeah. So come up with hard and fast rules and then your decisions are made for you. You don't have to rely on willpower. Yeah. So I just want to summarize some of that for my followers. So I will describe uh, willpower as a battery. It's full in the morning when we wake up and then it gets drained as the day goes yeah. on. So then by yeah. the time evening comes and kids are in bed, your battery's empty. And that's where you either exert massive discipline and go to bed or have a bath or something, or you say F it and you give in to the cravings. Um, Shermaine, we did we did a massive study on nighttime overeating because it's such a serious problem. Yeah. And we find a couple of things that people should know. We, we wrote a book about it. It's called An End to Nighttime Overeating. A mm -hmm. um, couple of things. I don't think we've ever solved nighttime overeating for anyone who refuses to eat breakfast. When people are not eating till, you know, 11, 12, 1 o'clock, sometimes later in the day, um, it seems like the brain just knows it's going to be a long fast coming up and it throws up stronger cravings. So at least for the first four to six months, and then you can introduce longer fasting windows if you want to. Mm -hmm. If you want to overcome nighttime overeating, we suggest starting with a substantial breakfast. Yeah. Second really weird thing we found was that the people who overcame nighttime overeating, they added something crunchy at lunch, like some type of cruciferous vegetable, like mm -hmm. celery or carrots or radishes, or sometimes even a little bit of nuts, but you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Um, but we we have we can't prove this, but we have the hypothesis that there's a certain amount of frustration that builds up over the course of the day, and it makes you want to kind of bite people. You, you can't bite people. You're not allowed to do that. But by actually having something to chew on, um, we think that you dissipate some of that aggression, and then there's not as much of a need to bite at night. Whether my crazy psychological theory is true or not, we do know that adding some crunch to your lunch seems to help. Mm -hmm. And then having a routine in the evening, having a really clear demarcation point, like in the vampire movies, you know when the sun is going down because the music changes and they, they put mm -hmm. salt around the perimeter and their crosses yeah. on the door. You, you got to know when, what time put it's- Put your salt it, down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to know what time to put your salt down so that Pigula can't get you, yeah. um, can't come whispering to you. And um, there's a lot more to it, but those are some really good tips for nighttime overeating. Yeah, I I would um, support what you're saying about the crunch. I see that with my clients. The lunch really? is always substantial. There's some sort of crunch, but I've also seen a lot of research around if you're having smoother smoothies, because smoothies are a big thing for breakfast. They bypass that satiety pathway and all the hormones. So then by the evening, there's a higher likelihood <laughs> that people are going to overeat or have cravings. So I've always like specified breakfast and lunch, you need to be hitting all these digestive pathways, but also the hormones too. I never heard it explained like that. That's beautiful. I, yeah. really appreciate, I really appreciate that. That's Thank helpful. Thank you.
I would yeah. have thought you would be well ahead with that. No, yeah, you, you just don't assume. Don't assume. But so. um, I want to just, just in case people have got confused before we start to kind of wrap things up, just explain to people what is the pig? You've referenced it a few times. Now I know what it is, but for people who don't know, what is the pig? So it's it's not your inner wounded child. It's not a part of your personality. It's the set of thoughts, feelings, impulses, and images that suggest that you're going to break at least one rule in your food plan. So once you define one rule, I'll never eat chocolate again. The pig is anything that says you're going to break it. That's all. Because you took the time to figure out how you want to behave around that particular food, what your higher self wants to do. So you want to start to dissociate from that lower self. And the way it's defined, there's nothing really good about it. This is important because at the moment of impulse, what happens in binge eating or even overeating beyond your own best judgment is that the reptilian brain takes over. It's like a misfiring of the emergency activation system. The part of our brain that's designed to protect us from famine that really thinks we're going to starve if we don't have this. And this is why all of your best thinking seems to go out the window all the time, because it's a, it's a misfiring of that, of that system. So at that moment, you need some way of asserting a kind of animalistic dominance. Like you can't feel sorry for it. You can't say, well, this is the part of me that was, you know, damaged as a child and I developed this as a coping mechanism. And now I don't need those survival mechanisms. It might be true to some extent, but that's not how this works. Mm -hmm. And I have compassion for whatever you went through, just like you had compassion for me and my, my mom. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be able to be that alpha wolf and snarl and growl and say, get back in line or I'll kill you. I am the superior animal here. You got, you got to be the dominant person in your own mind. You got to be. Um, so that, that's what it is. And if you can adopt that attitude and then pursue all of that heal thyself psychological work separately. I still do some of that. I don't really take new clients anymore, but um, I still believe in that. But I don't think it's really, um, I think it's a distraction from okay. overcoming binge eating. So in what you're saying is in the moment of the temptation or whatever it is, it's like, there's a devil on your shoulder that's your pig and you yeah. have to say no you are not controlling me now i am in control but it's not a cute devil like you see in the movies or a cartoon yeah. it's more it's more like a incubus that's going to yeah. suck your soul like and, the scariest and, thing you could the imagine. scariest <laughs> thing you could imagine that you don't want to even consider yeah. you need to say get, get the Get the F back inside. Get off my shoulder, man. And if you give in, you might lose part of your soul. So don't do it. <laughs> what will you do? I mean, anybody who's struggled with binge eating knows that the next 48 hours is hell. Oh, it's, it's regret, it's, isn't it? It's just guilt and regret and kicking yourself. And I'm the worst person ever. And yeah. it really is. It's, it yeah. is terrible. And you know what? You When you give in, you know. You know how you're going to feel sometimes the pig or the incubus he he wins yeah well you don't you don't have to let that happen at, at the moment of ill i want to give you one more tip there are a lot more things i can give your people and help them with but um at the moment of impulse when you feel the pig is active what i want you to do is take what Lori hammond calls a 7-eleven breath breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11 do it a couple of times the reason that works is that your uh your sympathetic nervous system has become erroneously activated. That's the system that prepares you for emergency action, F fight or flight, feast or famine. Mm -hmm. This is why we have things like, what's you know, we have sayings like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> it, it, it's a real survival belief. Yeah. Real, well, if there was a real emergency, let's say you were being chased by a hungry bear, you wouldn't have the time to breathe out for longer than you breathed in. You'd be going, <laughs> just running as fast as you could. So when you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11 a couple of times, you're telling your brain, there's no emergency here. This is a time to rest and digest and think. You're deactivating the sympathetic system. You're activating the parasympathetic system, which is the part of us that, you know, makes rational plans and pursues long-term goals and connects with other people and does all that kind of thing. Yeah, you really calm yourself down so you can think. Yeah. 
moment. That is a great tip. And while we're on this, are there any kind other, apart from the tools and techniques you teach in your books, which are amazing, are there any external aids or supplements that you recommend people to kind of help them with the cravings and the journey? Like I've spoken about apple cider vinegar and glutamine and stuff to my clients, but anything you would recommend? Okay. Tell me about apple cider vinegar and glutamine. Would you mind real quick? Because I, I, no. I don't recommend that. I, I, I mean, I don't know about it. So yeah, yeah, of course. So apple cider vinegar and the research, of course, as most people know, is out the door when it comes to apple cider vinegar. But when we look at apple cider vinegar in regards to cravings, it's proposed that if you take some apple cider vinegar, when you feel a craving come on, not only does the bitterness and the sourness distract your taste buds from the kind of sugar desire they might have, but you also stimulate the vagus nerve, which goes back to what I was saying about stimulating digestive pathways and hormones. Oh. But I mean, I don't know how far deep you get into it, but I also look at research in regards to like imbalances of the microbes. And if you've too many bad bacteria, bad bacteria crave sugar. So that can drive uh -huh. the cravings. So apple cider vinegar helps to kill off the bad and helps with the proliferation of the good, which are our carbon eaters, which are our fat eaters. So it's multi-level, multifactorial. And then in regards to glutamine, there is research that shows that when we do get depleted of glucose because of say willpower we've made so many decisions that later in the day our body is craving that glucose that if you combine some glutamine with some amino acids say from a whey protein isolate the glutamine will kind of mimic the glucose into the cells and help with craving interesting Interesting. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things, magnesium, of course, insulin resistance, like there's a few things. Um, and I don't mean step on any toes. I was just no, no, you're not stepping on my toe. No, no, no. I, I leave this to the dietitians and nutritionists because I'm not one. Yeah. What, what I will tell you is that we found that um, serious overeating is usually a result of some type of serious bodily deprivation. Mm -hmm. So pe people have often been too seriously dieting. And they're keeping themselves on a feast and famine roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And that if we can get them to have regular meals and flood their body with nutrition regularly, reliably, several times per day, that the cravings are not quite as strong and they're much more manageable. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I don't stop with the notion that, well, that's just my pig that wants chocolate on a Wednesday. I ask myself, what does my body really need? Is there an authentic need that I'm ignoring? Often it would happen at two or three in the afternoon when I was tired and I hadn't eaten since like 10 or 11 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I started to experiment for me with smoothies at that time of the day. Um, and I wasn't thinking about the crunch with your lunch or anything back then, <laughs> but I, now I have some crunch with my lunch too. Yeah. Um, so I eventually discovered that if I would have a kale, banana and celery smoothie, a um, couple of bananas, some celery juice, and then, you know, some kale juice as well, I would kill the craving. And I would be very content. It would scratch the itch. I wouldn't have the same high that I got from the chocolate because I don't have the theobramine and caffeine and all of the concentrated pleasure that you get from, from that kind of a drug. Mm -hmm. But I would no longer have the craving and it became much easier to do all the other things that we talk about and disempower the pig. So I tell people... If you want to lose weight, flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit on a regular, reliable basis. It's much, much easier to do all of this. And, and then, then I send them to people like you for specific advice about apple cider vinegar and glutamine. And um, I, I, but I'm going to tell some people about that and have them experiment. And maybe I'll yeah. have them I'll have them watch this call and they'll know. Yeah, the research is there, but with your smoothie, like you're getting, you're flooding your body with the minerals and then the nutrients and your magnesium, which I'm just going to tell you this before we wrap up. And I think you'll find this interesting. So sometimes I will have my clients do some smoothies for breakfast for whatever reason. Uh, they might be in a rush. I want to flood their body with nutrients or whatever. And it's very, I design them specifically, but I always, always say to them, if you're going to have a smoothie or a shake for breakfast, I need you to add in something crunchy. So I'll give them the option. Well, 
walnuts, a handful of walnuts, if you like, because we're no, not to- not in this not in the smoothie though. No, right? no, on the sides, yeah. on the side. You want them to chew. I it. want the crunch, um, not just the whole digestive aspect but i'm thinking okay well if their willpower is going if it's going to be a stressful day at least i know they're going to get some essential fatty acids to help their brain function but more often than not i'll get my clients to add in some dark chocolate on the sides that's very crunchy but dark chocolate is you may know is very high in manganese and copper and magnesium, which are the minerals that get depleted by the adrenals when we're under a lot of stress. So I'm like trying to stack conditions in their favor at the start of the day. As I say, we're creating a pool that you can pull from as the stress comes at you during the day. So I'm Mm. getting the crunch Mm. and giving them like, we're trying to stack conditions in your favor, but I thought you would find that interesting. I find that very interesting. Yeah, I'm going to make sure some people watch this. Okay, so you have Never Binge Again, which I have and I've shared with my clients. Uh, I have these and loads of my clients have this one, but you have a new book. What's this new book? Well, we have a lot of books. Um, We have a book called An End to Nighttime Overeating. We have a book called I Love My Workbook, which is probably the most helpful thing after you have the main book, if you want to work through the process yourself. We also have coaching programs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a book called 45 Binge Triggers, which is, addresses very specific triggers. Um, okay. If you take to this philosophy and it seems to work for you, you might want to read my biography with food. There are a lot of kind of like subtle lessons and you can kind of see where this all came from. It's called Me, My Pig and I. Um, the, the best thing to do is go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, sign up for a free copy of the book in PDF or um, Nook or Kindle format, yeah. and then we'll lead you to everything else. Yeah. But um, you, you'll find all the books, you'll find the programs. We have a podcast, we have a free readers forum um, where we're out there trying to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. And um, people like you, Shemaine, are helping us do it. Um, you know, a couple hundred at a time. Well, I'm happy to try help. So the red button, which is going to open Pandora's box and help people <laughs> kind of lead the way into wherever else they feel drawn what, to. What, 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 what you'll get in addition to the free copy of the book is a set of food plan starter templates. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a whole foods plant-based person myself, but the program is diet agnostic. So yeah. we work we work with people who are keto. We work with people who are you know, carnivore. We work with people who are point counters, calorie counters, uh, vegan, macro, what, what, whatever, whatever you do. The odds are that we can work with you as long as it's a reasonable nutritional plan. What, what we can't do is work with people who, you know, want to have four or five hundred calories a day and starve themselves. That that just doesn't work. Um, but if you're willing to lose a pound or two a week and do it steadily and get things under control, we can help. The last thing we'll give you is a set of recorded coaching sessions. This is all free. Because I know that this sounds a little scary and weird. Like, why does Shemaine have this doctor with a pig inside of him? Not so much. <laughs> no, no. Um, but it's actually a very compassionate process. And you can see how I take people from feeling uh, hopeless and powerless and scared to feeling enthusiastic and powerful and hopeful in just one session. Um, so I want you to hear how it actually works. So let neverbingeagain.com click the big red big red button by the way in the very beginning you mentioned never again incorporated that's actually not my company my company is never ever again incorporated oh never Um, ever yeah yeah, just first one (laughs) first one was taken so i will put links to everything below uh before i let you go what is the name of your podcast i didn't know you had a podcast oh you can go to never never binge again podcast.com and sign up for that Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. That will be very helpful because I people listen more. Audio is the future, as I think most of us know now. We we walk and listen, we clean and listen, we work out and listen, all that. So audio is where it's at. So I'll link to all of that. Thank you for spending time with me. I might have you back on in the future. Whatever you like. If that suits you and we can discuss this a bit more. Um is there anything else you'd like to add? Like final no, no. words, like people don't give up? <laughs> oh, well, it's easier than you think. Um, some people are frightened of the discipline, but you know, Jim Rohn said a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And um, it's act- actually the case that 
freedom sits on top of discipline. It's not opposed to it. So mm. like it's only because of the discipline of the engineers who made your car that you can turn the wheel 30 degrees on the steering wheel and the wheels turn 30 degrees and you can drive around town and then you have freedom that we couldn't imagine a couple of hundred years ago because of the discipline of those engineers. Um, I used to be a jazz musician and it was only because I had the discipline to practice the scales and I understood the structure of music that I could improvise my soul away from that. So discipline actually creates freedom. It doesn't, um, doesn't take it away. And you can start with one simple rule. You, you don't have to do anything complicated, just something you could and would do that would make a big difference. I know a guy who started by saying, I'll never go back for seconds. The other guy said, I'll never put my fork down between bites. I mean, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Um, I'll never have pretzels except for a major league baseball park. Whatever would be easy for you to do, but would make a big difference and give you an opportunity to practice this game. Because the difference between feeling totally out of control and like you're losing all the time and having just one area where you're winning the game, it's the difference between feeling powerless and hopeless and feeling like, oh, I could do this. I mm. could do this. And that's what you want to do first. Unless yeah. your doctor says to lose weight quickly, but that's what you want to do first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was fantastic. Those last few words. I'm glad I asked. I put you on the spot, but I'm glad I asked. No, no, I'm glad you did too. <laughs> thank you for spending some time with me. Um, it's been a pleasure. I know everyone's going to enjoy this. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Have a great evening and we will we'll definitely chat to you soon. Yeah, <laughs> when, when you want to, let me know. Yeah.